Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, Join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Osiris. Welcome to the Helping Friendly Podcast. I'm Megan. Happy President's Day. It's Monday, February 20th. I hope a lot of you have had work off today. Jonathan's already drinking. I'm off today for my day job of teaching America's youth. I'm recording from the mountains, which has been really nice. It's Monday of a week that I've been waiting for for a really, really long time because it's Mexico week. And is that a real week? I'm so excited. It's not yes, on my calendar. It's a real week. It is yeah, for me. It's, it's on my hey, calendar. Right on. It's on Brian's calendar. And this year is going to be different because I'm going to be on the beach with them this year for the first time. And I've just been waiting for so long. So I can't believe it's actually happening. 
I'm so excited. But before we get to that, we have a pod to do today. We're back 40 for 40. We are talking about an episode, I mean, a show that Jonathan selected that is so great. It's 10 20 1989. Oh, so, Jonathan, hi. Show. I know. Will you tell right. us why you chose this show? Um, it's probably my second favorite show from the year. Uh, as I was saying backstage before we started, you know, we did a party with a you know bonfire and all that last that week for 1988. So I didn't want to repeat that theme by choosing the 528-89 Ian's Farm show, which is my favorite show from this year, 1989. This, again, as I said, is my second favorite. This is great tape. It's got uh, a couple important moments, not necessarily um, debuts, uh, although there is at least one important debut, important to me, maybe not to anyone else. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering which one it is. Yeah, and uh, we'll get there. Okay, uh, but a really nicely recorded show, uh, just great performance. Uh, it's got horns. Uh, yeah, it's got a little bit of everything. Uh, it's got Trey dropping an f bomb from the stage. Come on, how could you lose? Yeah, it's an awesome show, and I'm so glad we're going to talk about it today. RJ and Brian are off today. They'll be back next week for our Mexico recap. But today, we have a very special guest, a good friend of mine, fellow fish podcaster, Brian Weinstein from Attendance Bias. Brian, thank you for being here today. Thank you for the invitation. I was saying earlier that for my own podcast called Attendance Bias, you can see it on the screen, that a lot of guests pick shows that are more recent than the one we're going to talk about today. So it really is a pleasure to break down, listen to, and discuss a show from Pre-modern fish. Not quite pre-recorded, but pre-modern. Hadn't really considered that you only talk to noobs on your show. That's not true. (laughs) That's not true. I'm just kidding, of course. Um, Great show. I'm pleased to have been on it, Uh, although we talked about a 2.0 show, which was weird. Your Um, episode was great, though. It was really cool. (laughs) I loved listening to it because it was just such a different episode than you usually get. You know, usually people are talking about, like, this was the best show of my life, the best day of my life. And I love Most people don't cry when they are. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it was really moving, and I loved it. And I got to be on, too, and it was one of my favorite things I've done. So thanks, Brian, for having us. Both. Thanks for being on the show. That's it's, and not only that, but Brian Brinkman and RJ have also here. I've collected all the whole set. Hey, you got us nice all. Work. Shout out <laughs> here to anybody listening who maybe attended some really early fish and would like to talk with Brian about it on his show. You should reach out to him because he, you know, does great stuff. It's a lot of fun, and I recommend it. It's at uh, attendancebias at gmail.com. And I think I've only had two guests choose shows from 1990 or earlier. And that could come up in our conversation wow. as we go. Uh, David Zizix Steinberg, we all know him. Uh, he picked oh, yeah. a show, I think, from 1990 or 92, maybe. And then Sue Drew, who was Fish's A&R person at Electra Records, picked a show from, I think, 1990 at the Marquee in New York City. It's an important show for the band. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. That's so cool. Yeah. And I would say, even if you're not someone who is used to getting on a microphone and talking about fish, I would definitely think about doing it anyway. I've sent some friends Brian's way and they had not podcasted or anything before. And I think they really loved it. And it's just so nice to hear from a variety of people. 
Brian makes it easy. Um, <laughs> he's he's not mean to his guests like we are. Yeah. So, uh, he won't yeah. make fun of you like we yeah, might. <laughs> exactly. Uh, awesome. We, are well, we mean? no, we're super nice. We're super nice. <laughs> okay, so now it's time to get into our show and talk about 1989. And before I dive into what was going on with fish, then I think we should talk about what was going on in the world in 1989. Nothing much. It's just like a blip of a year, I think. Nothing yeah. important happened, right? Same shit, different year. Yeah. Yeah. Much. You know, downfall of communism happens all the time. Yeah. It's fine. Regimes fall, regimes rise. No big deal. It's like what, like walls, maybe in Berlin, something like that. Yeah. Something like that. What else happened? What Tell us. You've got a little list, don't you, Megan? Can you tell us I've what happened? I've got a little list. Here? Yeah. We've got Tiananmen Square. That's going on in China. So that's kind of a big deal. Kind that protest deal. is, yeah, kind of a big deal. We've got the Game Boy coming out, kind of a big deal. That yeah, kind of that is a big many, deal. Impactful to many deal. fish fans. Yes, those little past yes. portable gaming devices myself, but a lot of people <laughs> listening probably cared quite a bit. Yeah, big deal. And what else? We've got the debut of the Simpsons. Show? By the way, it should be noted. Oh yes, nobody's wow, even I can't heard of that Simpsons show. Are that old. <laughs> that's crazy the simpsons have been on forever that's well speaking that's, of 40 realize. for 40 they're approaching they i think they just signed a contract recently to get to 40 seasons amazing really that's incredible yeah and they still them. deliver a few good jokes every episode so uh worth watching i think sometimes um, i haven't watched just, the simpsons in so long yeah we check it out it's it's always good for a laugh yeah, Ralph Wiggum is one of my favorite characters of all time. <laughs> he's just the fucking best. What like his lines are the best. He's my favorite. On, he's my favorite character on the show. So we sh- should we talk about um, some music from the time period? Let's yes. see. It's 1989. So I'm going to give you a couple albums that were huge that year. Um, earlier in the year, Like a Prayer uh, held. Oh the number one album slot for a little while. It knocked out Tone Loke's Loked After Dark, which itself knocked out Debbie Gibson's Electric Youth. God, this um, is all my shit. Yeah. Fine Young Cannibals. They were huge. They came after the Like Prayer. The Prince Batman soundtrack. soundtrack. Can't say it, but I mean it. Six weeks at number one. Big deal. Uh, as we draw closer to uh, October, where we're really... Focusing, we have you know a couple weeks. The new kids hanging tough. Millie Vanilli, girl, you know it's true. Had two weeks as the number one album. Saw everybody, both of those acts. My first concert, New Kids, and saw Millie Vanilli too. Where was everybody that? should be ashamed for Detroit. any contribution to Millie Vanilli's success. Girl, you know it's true. Yeah, great song. Their behind the music episode was top notch. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I remember seeing them and being like. Yeah. Whoa, like they're just flipping around on stage and they're singing at the same time. This is crazy. <laughs> Amazing. Incredible, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> um, you know, so zooming down the list real quick, though, we have uh, Paul Abdul only had one week with Forever Your Girl because Dr. Feelgood from Motley Crue knocked it off the charts <laughs> and was the number one record at the time of this show uh, wow. to be dethroned. Oh, yeah. By Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation 1814. That shit fucking rocked, by the way. And by the way, Millie Vanilli would later get three more weeks in the number one slot, broken up by (laughs) one week of Billy Joel's 
Stormfront. So come my on. boy. Wow. 89. Wow. What a year. Um, a couple key notes also uh, singles wise, like number one songs in October. We're just going to keep it to October because there's a lot of songs. Um, we had uh, Sowing the Seeds of Love, Tears for Fears, entered the charts in October of 1989. Uh, we had Listen to Your Heart from Roxette, entered the charts on the same day and peaked at number one on November 4th. Um Dr. Feelgood by Motley Crue would enter the charts a week after this. Uh, oh, cover. Oh, did I say cover girl by new kids? Yeah. That came in uh, October 21st, entered the charts. Love in an elevator from Aerosmith. Oh, God, that sounds awesome. It holds up. That's a banger. Um, ridiculous, is. but also good. Um, yeah, so that's that's where we were. There's a lot of other songs later. Uh, a couple a couple weeks later, the B52s "Love Shack" would blow up the oh, chart. Iconic, iconic. Earning, earning B52s the you know critical financial commercial success that they had long deserved. There we go. And, uh, I'll leave it there. There's so many songs and things we could talk about, uh, but quite an interesting moment in pop music. Meanwhile, in Vermont. There's a little band yeah. making music that would not begin to crack the charts. No, they're not going to crack the charts, but they are going to get their first mention in the national music media this year. In the September and October issue of Relics, they are going to have a little write-up in the Too New to Be Known section <laughs> that talks about their musical flair and their musicianship and their sense of humor, which I think is pretty cool because they kind of nailed it. So well done, Relics. Yeah, yeah, you know, I... I remember reading Relics. I don't think I was reading it yet in 89, but soon after. Um, and I was always looking at that column for bands that were playing clubs and possibly to come around where I was going to be. Although half the time they were like in Texas or New York and not Virginia. But what are you going right. to do? It's so cool. Yeah, so they played a lot of shows in 1989, again, upping their show count. They had 97 the year before, and in 1989, they played 126 shows. And this year, really what characterizes this year for them is expansion. You know, this is now when they start touring regularly throughout the East Coast. So they're doing colleges all over New England. They're doing newly opened wetlands in New York City, so that's going to be a place for them to actually go in New York and have, like, kind of a place where they can you know, where jam bands were going to start to to have a home base in New York, which is cool. You've got the 8x10 Club in Baltimore, the Roxy in D.C., the Living Room in the Providence. They're doing their last shows in Nectars in March. They're going to outgrow this venue. And then they're going to start to play only at the front, really, in Burlington. Um, and they play there 50 times. So it's going to become super important. But one of the most important shows from this year is actually a very famous show that happens in January, and that's the show that happened at the Paradise in Boston. And they would not book Fish. I'm sure people know about this. So Paluska and Hunter booked the venue, and they carpooled people down. They did radio ads, and they completely packed the place. And there were hundreds of college kids outside trying to get in, and it got them on the radar of like the Boston booking scene. And so that was really impactful. And I think also affected their strategy or influenced their strategy moving forward about doing it themselves. And I think that led to kind of their festival mindset too. You know, like if people aren't going to book us, we're going to do it ourselves. I think 1989 was kind of, people talk about 96 as an in-between year, musically speaking. I think 1989 was kind of an in-between year in terms of professional direction and maybe even musical direction where they're still playing 
college campuses or even unless mm-hmm. I'm mixing this up with 1988, like college frat houses, even in certain circumstances, but they're also yeah, they playing, play a few. Mm-hmm. right. But they're also playing the wetlands, which would come yeah. to be like a touchstone place in New York city for up and coming jam bands, like the disco biscuits, or even the, at the time, the spin doctors and blues traveler and that cohort. So they were still growing, but they weren't settled yet. They were still yeah. figuring out who they were, where they could play, where is their audience and how many people would come see them, whether announced or unannounced. And I think that comes across in the recording of today's show that Jonathan picked. You could hear it in the background, you know, people chatting. They're just like another bar band in some ways, even though at the time this is like their home venue. Yeah. Absolutely. At the same time, musically, they sound like, yes, Paige's equipment isn't quite what it would soon be, but they sound like fish more totally. so than anything else we've listened to in this series up to date. Um, they like many of the arrangements sound just like the arrangements I heard when I first started seeing this band. And that's why this is one of my like favorite tapes, old tapes. I got this tape in the early nineties and listened to it a lot because not only was it old school fish and a lot of fun, a little bit different, but at the same time, it was very familiar. It connected to what I was hearing at the time. Especially in the second set. Especially in the second set. Some of the big numbers, which we will get to. Um, should we get into like the first set here? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. The only other thing that we have to mention oh, is that Corota starts taking over lights in April, and that's a big deal. So we've got yeah. to mention that. He yeah. gets a special shout out in this show in the second set, but we'll get to that too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you want oh, to call and that, I yeah. also yeah. wanted to say that they debuted 41 new songs this year. So we've wow. got songs like Split Open and Melt, The Mango Song, Bathtub Gin, Paw, Punch You in the Eye, My Sweet One, Reba, Kung, and Lawn Boy. So you've got some really, really heavy hitters this year. And also they released Junta, self-released it, and we're selling it at shows. So it's a really big year for them. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you mind if I run down the set? Let's do it. So set one is Harpua, into Bundle of Joy, into Colonel Forbins, into Mockingbird, into You Enjoy Myself. There's a lot of arrows here. You, maybe you could question them. Into the Okipa Ceremony. Into Reba. Into Divided Sky. The Golgi Apparatus to wrap up the set. That is... That's a lot of bang for your buck. That's a lot for one <laughs> set. Is Harpua the best show opener ever? Like, boom, you're in a fish show. You know, like, yeah, it's it, does, great. it doesn't have that, like, oompa-pa opening that we know now. And it's only, like, 90 seconds. But it's just, like... It's just amazing. I feel like it's just like catapults you into the world of fish instantly. Sort of, but it's not the world that we've come to know. No. But when Harpua opens a show into Bundle of Joy, it's immediately apparent to me listening to this show. And Jonathan, this is the first time I've listened to this show. Oh, ever. wow. I didn't okay. have a lot of tapes from early fish. so it's. A, but it was immediately apparent to me in retrospect that by this point, they've kind of already established their personality, musical personality, as like progressive savant nerds who are very yeah. serious about their music, even as silly as it does sound. And they've also put together a bunch of these complex but very short, compelling pieces of music, some with, some without. Harpua, I think, on the track list is like two minutes. 
Yeah, because it's really just the like first chunk of the song, no narration, and it doesn't have the final bit of the song. Right. Uh, Just just like the beginning. Nowadays, if they played just this, people would be so fucking mad if you oh, yeah, i don't know if you guys remember the outrage after the clifford ball um where they they you know i think did a pretty cool high concept thing where the story hasn't taken off and have the gliders and it's a little mistimed and but you know and then they don't finish harpu and people were just mad all over the internet <laughs> even unless they showed up at the gl- at the great Wentz when they picked it up well but there was a year later, yeah. so everybody was stewing for so long. And then at the great <laughs> one, they gave us the second half, and that was very cool. Um, but right. so, yeah, I, it, it, this is a pretty cool little thing. And it does something that I want Fish to do again, which is it has just the standalone bundle of joy. Be amazing. Which is well, so way, rad and weird. The way I thought about that, though, which it's very disconcerting to modern ears <laughs> when you hear Harpua into Bundle of Joy, because it's so many missing pieces even though all, all these songs that we know now are now the sum of their parts, right? I mean, very literally. I, yeah, it's yeah. to me, but when that's I was like listening, why it's the best listening to this. Cause it's like, you hear the evolution. You it's know? the best you listening like, the second time. Because <laughs> the first yeah. time it's like, I don't know what Fair. I'm hearing. It, it, the way the image that came to me when listening to this opening Harpua bundle of joy, it's obvious that they have all these really great, short, compelling, complex pieces of music, but they don't know where they fit yet. In the larger mm-hmm. picture, it's what came to me is like this old adage of in a jail, the prisoner who builds a glider in the prison basement to go over the wall, but then realizes he can't fit the glider outside of the basement door. <laughs> like they know they have all these amazing pieces, but how do they use them now? And this show is kind of them figuring that out. Right. And that's what they were doing at this time. Um, yeah. That said, I still think it's a great opportunity to mess with people like yourself by <laughs> by putting this on and just like defying expectations because Fish is n- good at, if nothing else, defying expectations. And it's just another way they could do that. So please, Bundle of Joy, stand alone anytime. Thanks. Um, <laughs> and I will say, you know, please. that metaphor that like story you were telling us, Brian, it's actually really apt because that's kind of what Fish was doing. They were building these like epic compositions in bars and in like really small rooms. And they were, they have this like, you know, Trey's compositional vision is so vast and like just astounding. And he was performing in, in really humble spaces. And I think that it's so cool to watch them find out where these pieces go and put it all together. Like the fact that they were able to do that while playing 126 shows a year, driving all around, you know, not making much money, like just it's it just speaks to their genius. Yeah, and at some point the full force of Fluffhead would explode in an arena and it would be amazing without a question. Yeah. Um so Forbin's Mockingbird, again, love listening to these songs at this time frame because of the precision. Yeah. Is really high. Uh, Paige gives us this cool Jeopardy tease in the, uh, at the beginning of uh, Mockingbird, which is pretty cool. I was, we were riding in the car to the mountains yesterday, listening to it. I was like, Oh, Jeopardy tease. Um, drove my wife crazy when stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I love it. I love the way this one plays out. And they play that four note, seven note little lick every time they ever play this song, but they really lean into it here 
which is then still mm. figuring out how much should we play this? How much should we reference this hugely popular television game show? Maybe we just right. lift a little bit from it and it's let it go of, there. Yeah. It's all in the phrasing. Like, it, it, it is it Jeopardy? This time it's Jeopardy. Then they play it again, but they don't play it again. You know, it's just in mm. exactly. Well, it's like Let It Be in Sleeping Monkey. Well, no, that one's just like a lift. That's just a straight up. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, no hiding that. You mentioned the the precision, right? You said how how you like that. It also is very slow. They're playing a lot of these songs mm-hmm. at rehearsal pace, which is good. It adds to the precision, but you can tell how they're not as lightning fast confident as they as they would become with it in a year two. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm really excited to get into like 91. Yeah. And we're still pre jam and we're getting into like just like lightning fingers uh, stuff. But that is getting ahead of ourselves a little. Um, <laughs> but it is kind of cool because that's how they were playing these songs then. I don't even know that it was rehearsal place. It's just where they were. Like, you know, you can hear that they are they are trying new stuff all the time. So they are playing things slower because they're so complicated. And I think going into this, yeah. I'm, this you enjoy myself is amazing. I mean, Paige is just absolutely killing it. Trey's solo is incredible. Mike has this like funky breakdown solo. I mean, this it's such a good version. I love the yums from like this time period. It's a good version. Paige is really mm-hmm. high in the mix at this point in the set, which does a, get corrected for second set, I think. But um, yeah, I really like this. Brian, what do you think? I like that you enjoy myself as as well. I wrote that it sounds deliberate. Mm-hmm. Which in, instead yeah. of slow, because it is slow, but it's very practiced. But it's, it sounds very much like the studio version of Junta, and a lot of these songs are on Junta, and that kind of goes to the setless construction of this whole yep. show, where mm-hmm. a lot of the songs that appear on Junta are almost sound identical to when they played live, to the recording speed and uh, and as uh, as uh, precise as they are as they're played here. Uh, I also thought that, I don't know, some of the instruments you mentioned, like Pages uh, earlier, Jonathan, I thought Mike's bass and uh, Fishman's tom sound very cheap. <laughs> uh, but yeah, on the other bass, hand, you can hear it like twanging sometimes. Yeah. Like, yeah. You, picture, you could hear his finger sliding yeah. up the neck of it. Uh, but Trey, he is very, very precise with his tone. And he, mm-hmm. of, I mean, I'm sure they all believed in this music. I think it's inaccurate to just point out Trey, but it's worth noting, and this could be wrong, but I think every single song in this first set was written by Trey or written cre- credited to Fish. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. is really the Definitely. forefront. He is pushing this and he believes in this music. Absolutely. Yeah, and no covers here in this set. Right. Yeah. They're playing so many less covers. Yeah. It's really, it's incredible. I think the Reba is interesting. It's really slow. Trey flubs the lyrics. This is only the third time they played it. They debuted it at the front three weeks earlier. So it's brand new. And God, Reba is a tough song, you know? And and it's just, it's amazing thinking about them playing Reba for the first time. It's it's an undertaking, you know? And they've got that like bag it, tag it refrain that they're playing over the blues I love that bit. It's so weird. It's so good. Yeah. (laughs) And it's great. Yeah, it's not there anymore, but that instrumental bridge between like the lyrics and the composed section, it's it's really great. It's fun to hear it and just imagine this this song and its humble beginnings. This is the third time it's ever been played. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. third time. It debuted three weeks earlier, so at the at the front as well. So it's it's brand new. And Megan, you mentioned how complicated it is, how hard it is. It is, 
but it's not even as complicated as it would become. Yet Fishman mm-hmm. is playing a lot of his parts in a 4-4 basic drum beat throughout the jam part, whereas later, like the version that we know, for example, or even the version that was recorded on Lawn Boy is a lot more Tom heavy. It's a lot more percussion heavy, not just something that if you took a random competent drummer out of the crowd to just play a play play a simple four four beat that's what fishman does for a lot of this reba and it Mm. shows that they're never satisfied right they know that they're not there yet again this one is not fully baked it's like some other songs earlier in the set yeah that um like instrumental bridge part that they they later dropped uh, according to fish.net was la- later evolved into don't get me wrong. A song that was co-written oh, with John Hopper, yeah. which they only played a few times in 1990. Maybe we have to find one of those shows for It, I, it was played at the show that Sue drew. Uh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Really good vision at the marquee 1990. So check cool that song, one out. Actually. Yeah, it is. And I, it's funny you say that because I wrote in my notes, uh, I'm surprised this lick didn't find its way into a different fish song. And then in parentheses, <laughs> I wrote, wait, did it? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, here we are. Yeah. Um, it all comes from somewhere. Um, Trey wrote every piece of music that Fish has ever played back in that cabin in 1988, and now he's been trotting <laughs> him out for the last, you know, 40 years. Exactly. They just <laughs> Show of Life evolved. was written in the late 80s. <laughs> yeah, Show of Life was uh, exactly. written, in, and Summer of '89 was written in 1988. Yeah, exactly. Who knew? <laughs> So good. Yeah. And then we've got a beautiful divided sky yeah. and a really fun Golgi to close the set. It gets cut off on the recording I heard, but it sounded great. Yeah. It's a little too bad, but this is what's going to happen when people are making recordings with analog tapes and probably drinking beers at the bar and whatever instead of yeah. watching. Well, I like, like that because in Reba at eight minutes, you could hear people chatting in the background. Like you would even if, you know, when I was in a band post-college and we were playing whatever bar that would have us, most people would not be listening. And yeah, that's normal. You know, yeah, of course it's not. Well, that's what we tell ourselves, guys like us. But, you know. <laughs> Wait, what are you, what are you trying to lump me into here, man? <laughs> yeah, seriously. I've been in Nobody a lot of bars. Jonathan I've been in a lot of bands <laughs> and it's always the same. Uh, but but the, my point is, though, it's fun. We, we think about Fish, whether they're playing huge getaway resort shows or they're playing seven nights at Madison square garden this summer, this mega touring mechanism. And in 1989, they were every other schmuck bar band that no matter how complex or precise they're playing, I'd rather be having an arrogant set and talking to my friend next to me. You know, it doesn't it's really always matter. Gonna be chompers. Um, but yeah, you know, exactly. also it, this goes to the point that the, you know, tapers are probably in the back, you know, they're not, set up at the stage lip where if anybody is there to just listen to the music and dance, they're up front. They're not, yeah, they're right up front anyways. So, uh, that just such is life, unless you're at a, you know, an early aughts Kimok band show and the rig is set up right on the front of the stage, you know, you're going to get that. So, but I will say, I think there were a lot of people that were there to dance and listen in 1989 at the front and they were yelling and excited and, yeah, I think there were there were a lot of people that were super into them at this point, seeing them multiple nights in a row. Well, I'd love to know who their crowd was, I guess, is what I'm even though I'm talking with declarative sentences, I'm really asking. Like, yeah. What do I you think, think their was, crowd yeah. looked like? I mean, I think it was a mix. Like what I've read is that 
um, you know, from people like Amy Skelton saying that it was a mix kind of like it is today with like the frat boys, you know, having beers, those are the guys in the back talking and then the hippies up front, you know, kind of like dancing and listening just like a fish show today. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Burlington's a college town. Maybe a lot less devoted. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they have their, you know, actual fans in the room. There's also going to be a lot of walk-ins and, you know, hey, let's go see the band that's playing. And, you know, just as happens at every show that Brian has played is, no, I'm kidding, Brian. Um, just as happens <laughs> at any bar, there's plenty of people who are in there just because, they, you know, let's talk during music and drink beer and, you know, I don't know, meet women or boys or whatever you're into and not <laughs> listen to the music. I don't really understand that. If you want to talk to me, do not approach me during the music at a show. Find me Seems at separate find me before the show because i got nothing to say when the band is on they close with the divided sky and golgi and i thought by set break that the songs that were recorded for junta seemed like fresh ready to go out of the box and practiced and rehearsed but mixed in the songs that they were getting ready to record for lawn boy which would come out i believe next year in 1990 Mm -hmm. they seemed a little bit they, they were still tooling with some of them like yeah, Riva, brand new, for example, right? Yeah. They're brand new. Yeah. And they're going to get the money to record the first four songs of that album because they won a Battle of the Bands early The in Rock the year. Rumble, which yeah. is mentioned at, it happened right before that Ian's Farm show in, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was, it was in uh, May of 89. Um, yes. They have, sorry. I've heard of that. So cool. Yeah. It's so cool. I love that they're starting to to find ways to make money doing this too. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So set Jonathan, two. you want to tell us what set two is? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, so set two is, kicks off with, I didn't know, which has Fishman on trombone. I told you there'd be horns, <laughs> right? But it also has a couple <laughs> other guys, uh, Dave Grippo and Russ Remington sitting in. Uh, and those guys stick around for ACDC bag into Donna Lee and split open and melt one and a half times. Uh, Harry Hood, um, and then where are we? Oh, Swing Low Sweet Chariot in a Hole, which is a first known performance. Yep. Slave to the Traffic Light and Run Like an Antelope. Pretty good set on paper. How does it hold up to you guys? Uh, it-, it sounds great with the horns, I thought. I think the flow is really, really good, too. This is an example of where the jazz songs, like Donnelly and swing low they don't take the energy out of the set like the show we listened to for last week like i think they really they sound really good what do you think brian i thought that it was very much as jonathan said before that a lot of these songs are as structured they're the modern versions of the songs that we know today so harry hood for example if they were on different different instruments and played in a larger venue but note for note played the one at um, October 20th, 1989, wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Mm-hmm. E- these are the ones that are a little bit more structured uh, and stay consistent until the day, you know, today. Uh, I did like the jazz versions because I know this is right in the middle of or in between when they're doing the Johnny B. Fishman jazz ensemble shows. Yeah. So I know this was a forced brush up on those chops. And I really like that a band you know, you meant, uh, I'm sorry, Jonathan, you went down all the different popular music at the time. Yeah. You know, how, how many times do you think Aerosmith or Janet Jackson said to themselves, you know what, we're really not 
nailing this type of music, this genre. Maybe we should take a break and try and nail down four-way harmonies or knock down jazz. You know, they were really in their own insulated world and they were oh, able yeah. to do it. Yeah, the yeah. Johnny B. Fishman Jazz Ensemble, as Ensemble. Trey pronounces it Ensemble. Uh, yeah. in this set, <laughs> is, um, is a growing concern. And they, I guess, had a roughly weekly <laughs> thing uh, moving to the Radisson, which had 25 TVs on a wall. And let's remember that these were not flat screens. 25 TVs on a wall. Wow. Oh, my um, God, you're right. That takes a lot terrifying. to mount those. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Trey was totally trolling him. It was so yeah, he was, funny he in the show. He was trolling yeah. the Radisson. He was trolling yeah. television. Yeah, I, I love it. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's get into this. So uh, it's funny. They they open with I Didn't Know, which is always good for a LARF. And uh, Fishman's trombone playing is definitely shown up by the actual professional <laughs> proper yeah. horn players. Um, but again... It's fun. And Trey funny. says he can sure play that thing. <laughs> Trey's words. Yeah. yeah. Look at him go. Um, great bag. I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so good with the horns. Like, yes. Sounds the energy so is high on that. Yeah. I think it's just, mm-hmm. what a great, and I don't think I've talked about this. This is a ridiculous song. So like a thing you think <laughs> of if you're writing a pop song and is to think about like, you you, you got to generate a hook, a lyrical hook, right? That is like the ideal. Uh, and you, a lot of songwriters will lean into maybe a popular phrase of the time, or they try to try to coin one and just kind of coin some sort of obvious, seemingly obvious phrase that maybe nobody else has said. This song is an, almost entirely built from cliches, like lyrically everything it put them in a field and let them fight it out this is a thing that somebody has said before every line from this song is built on that stuff and it's an astounding it's astounding that they pull it off and make it listenable but the other thing that it does is that they can sing this song in front of an audience that hasn't heard it before and you're gonna you're gonna like maybe five times out of ten you're gonna know what the next word is even though you've never Mm. heard the song I never it's thought about trick. it like that. That's so smart. I never thought about it like that. It's so tongue in cheek, the whole thing too. And it just, yeah, this is yeah. so great. I never thought about it like that. And it's really cool to think that it's a way I don't know how deliberate that is. But yeah, it, it, I wonder. It, I, it's so chock full of these phrases, euphemisms and aphorisms and things that they must have been doing it on purpose. Although, again, for a laugh, I'm sure. I think I think they were doing it on yeah. purpose, and because yeah. it goes, if you go all the way back to alumni blues, right, right? There's there's I didn't have no legs is the joke because everything was about mm-hmm. rhyming with shoes, right? Right. right? So yeah, yeah. there's obviously that last rhyme, the rhyme scheme at the end of every other line or whatever it may be. There's thought put into it, right? ACDC bag was written oh, yeah. as part of Trey's thesis. He probably felt super smart for doing it, and <laughs> yeah. and you know what. He was. Yeah, I mean, look, yeah. I'm, I still sing it. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about it today. Well done. Yeah. I love this Donna Lee, too. It's so good. And they played the song 25 times through, like, 1988 to 1991. And the last time, though, they played it that one other time in 1993 in the middle of a David Bowie. And, Jonathan, I have been waiting all week to hear your thoughts. I haven't listened to that version. But I want to know what you think about Donna Lee inside Bowie. 
What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Give it to me uh, anytime. Let's have it. <laughs> um, Donna Lee is a great tune, and I think they uh, they do a reasonable justice to the thing here. Um, yeah. Of course, the horn players are what make it, and uh, it's it's beautiful. And I want I want to hear it again. Me too. This Me is too. a jazz standard, I think. With yes, horns, sure. yeah. with horns, yeah. without horns. No, I'll, I'll take it with the the quartet. Let let's have Trey bust out his favorite Charlie Parker lines. Come on, Trey, you mm. remember those? <laughs> Paige, let's get into it. What are you gonna do? You're gonna you're gonna lean into the clav. You're gonna go into the Fender Rhodes, little organ. What's it gonna be? I want it. That's a, it's a, it's not even a request now. It's a dare. <laughs> Whoa! Yes. <laughs> All right, you heard well, it here, Fish. I had the thought during Donna Lee with with the horns that because I, I well I did it backwards because I I got onto Fish before I even heard of Frank Zappa before I knew who he was. But listening to them play Donna Lee, I could see how people who love Zappa stuck around after they heard Fish. You know, because people get into Fish for a billion different reasons, whether it's right. musical dexterity, whether it's prog, you know. I liked, I got into fish first because I was into huge classic rock and they had obviously a lot of the same favorites that I did. They played Quadrophenia. And to me, it's like, well, they must be the best band ever now, I guess. Uh, and so <laughs> I'm but, just here for the jokes. Or you like drugs. <laughs> but, but Donna Lee, it's right. Or you like drugs. Or, but Donna <laughs> Lee sounds like it could be a Zappa song in a sense, but the horns mixed in with this really fast uh, dexterity, dexterous playing. And I don't know. Yeah. That's that's where my brain went while listening to Donnelly. Big applause on this, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It's well received. It's probably some a little some dancing, maybe. I hope um, so. And then we go into split danced? open and melt. Parts yeah, one and two. <laughs> think anybody dance to yeah. this next one? Yeah, so let's I go. Oh, I want to tell everybody what happened here. Yes. If you haven't yes, listened to this show, it. which you should have listened to this show by now, we, it's not like we didn't tell you at some point on the internet <laughs> what it would be, but um, they. They're going to play Split Open and Melt with the horns. The horn players, they have charts on stage. They get into the quiet bit and then like three minutes into the song and when um, the lights go off and they can't see the music and Trey's like, God damn, hang on. And he's like, it's going to be so cool. And then the fucking lights went off. We're going to, we're going to do it again and leave the lights on. You know, poor Chris. But it's so great because he's like, I'm sorry, but I was so psyched for this. Like, this was yeah, going to be the yeah. coolest thing we were going to do all night. It was just, it was. to he's me, so it just jazz. really spoke to, like, how serious, like, Trey takes this. And, like, that just, it was so cute because I think he thought they were going to then pick it up from there. But instead, I think Fishman just starts the beat from the beginning. And Trey's like, all right, we're doing the whole thing again. And then so they nail start it. it. Is the coolest thing it. that was going to happen all night when we see yeah. Split Open and Melt? now because the whole screw up was during the acapella the down down exactly where all the different trusses of Kurtigo like they all yes. go from t was that the thing did he have that idea already in 1989 because I still get <laughs> I still love it I think um 
the lights were a bit simpler then. Of course they uh, were, but I'm wondering because <laughs> no. that's the part they cut it off. He might no, just have been lowering it, the I lights. Think, yeah, I think yeah, I think he just lowered the because he's. It's not the first time they played Split Open and Melt. Unlike it's Reba, they've time. been playing Split Open and Melt since um, the beginning, since February of '89. So, but like, also he like knows a really hard tune. song. Oh yeah, I and mean, then this is the sixteenth time they've played it. So like, this is a tough song. But, but the first with the horns, and that yeah, was yeah, that's thing. true. They're the ones trying to read sheet music, and then they can't because Kuroda's like, "This would be cool if I make it dark." And any other time, <laughs> it was cool, but there were no horns then. So, so anyways, yeah. They, the next time they don't turn the fucking lights off. Thanks, Chris, and uh, <laughs> and it's awesome it's so cool this is the first time we're hearing the proper horns arrangement or the beginning Ugh. really of the horns arrangement because they had to embellish it for the full giant country horns later uh mm-hmm. of this song and it's just awesome i i'm i'm not even using good language to describe the uh su- significance of this performance to me as a listener I think that it really, this is like really tapping into the wider scope of Fish and Trey's genius when you hear what they're doing here for the first time. I totally agree. I think this whole set is incredible. Absolutely incredible. And a must listen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then we go into Hood. And again, you've got the horns on this like jazzy intro Trey's doing something like super funky. I think, I think it's Trey. He must have pedals or something. He sounds like really funky. And it was interesting, Jonathan, because when I was listening to it, I was thinking about you because remember, I think, was it in a bonus episode recently? I I won't spill it too much because, you know, those are special, but we were talking about the hood (laughs) chant and we were saying that there's music that the band would be playing if people weren't yelling. Something that happened. Yeah, yes. so Fish, I miss yeah. Fishman's uh, woodblocks. Yep. Bring them back. Yeah, so so you would be hearing, you can hear it in this in this version what they would be doing if we weren't yelling. So it was actually the first time that I thought about that while I was listening to it, and I see what you're saying. Thank I'm you. not saying I'm against the hood chant like you are, I, but that, I'm just saying. I'm not going to try to change your mind, although you should. <laughs> um, but thank you for hearing <laughs> this is my the point. beginning. Yeah, I did hear your point. Yeah. This is the beginning of me changing my mind. Nice version of this Harry Hood. We were coming back from the mountains listening to this set and had tried to explain to my son what the words were about. And he was like, that's ridiculous. And I was like, yes, yes, it is. Exactly. Let's hear some more. <laughs> I mean, they're not, a, they're not a jam band yet, obviously, right? They're they're open to playing different versions and playing with their music, but they're not jamming. I mean, mo- the longest track is You Enjoy Myself. And that's just because it's the composition itself is i think 16 minutes but this version of jamming is trey soloing while the rest of the band plays three chords over and over again at the end of hood yeah you know it's funny you say they're not a jam band yet but it's really a case of they were not a jam band anymore anymore for a while because i think even earlier they were 88 they were playing i mean in colorado they were they were definitely doing some jamming but yeah, yeah, you're right. At this point, they are a much more concise group. Am and I allowed to I'll, talk to the host of the uh, Broke Down podcast uh, with a Grateful Dead comparison on a fish podcast? Am I allowed to do it? Here? Do um, it. Yeah, yeah. On, let me so, just put on my... Okay. All right, all right, now you look ready. Okay, so 
in the late sixties or mid to late sixties when the Grateful Dead would just jam like crazy, you know, that six song set list with the 11, you know, St. Stephen, all that. Dark Star, St. Stephen. Yeah. 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 And then when the late, late sixties and like 1970 came around, they became so prolific in their songwriting that working man's dead and American beauty kind of forced them to become much more concise. Mm -hmm. They had to tighten up uh, because they were just becoming so much more creative. They were serving the songs instead Mm -hmm. of serving the jam. And that's what kind of what's happening with fish here, because there's almost already a new album's worth of music in these sets as well. And it would become lawn boy. So you're, you're right. You know, they expanded earlier in their career. I'm talking about fish now because they had to maybe fill time or they were just kind of exploring themselves as a group. And as musicians, now they've kind of explored themselves and now trying to hunker down into a direction, which is where these songs are taking us. And they're attempting to be more marketable. They're attempting to go and play venues and places they've never played. I object to that altogether. This band, Split Open and Melt, is in no way an attempt to be marketable. And if it is, I don't mean marketable like that. I mean going and they're playing their music for people that have never heard them before. And if you do that, you want to play lots of songs. You don't want to play a 35-minute jam because they're not going to remember you. fair, but I think that what they're really doing is more what brian is saying is that they've got this material and they are honing Mm -hmm. it they are yeah dialing it in so they can put it on the record but also so that they can play the absolute best version of harry hood and little did they know it would be many years but (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly they probably um, did know that's a whole other episode Um, (laughs) but uh you know they were and same for split up and ML, you know, and all of this, mm-hmm. they, they were trying to just focus, trying yeah. to focus. Trey has, is off the, off the leash, right? There's no uh, other guitar player who isn't willing or, <laughs> or ready to keep up. Everybody is all in. Yeah. Trey has got on through a variety of, you know, a number of writing sessions and time and working with Ernie Styers and all of these things that are shaping him. It's got all of this material to bring to the table. Now it's time to like, let's get this right. You can yeah, still go back a few it. months and go to some other shows that, where they get loose and get sloppy, but that's not what this show, it, literally this show is about. This show is about, we're going to come out and kick some ass we're going to do a set with the horns and then we're going to kick some ass again for set three. We're and we're going to have fun and we're going to have fun, yeah. but we're going to kick the ass tight. So let's, uh, let's finish this set too, because we've got a bunch more to get into. Um, yeah. Swing low, sweet chariot. I mean, I don't have a lot to say about it. I think it's cool. I think it's rad. The horns are really nice. Uh, yeah, a little more good. Johnny B. Fishman jazz ensemble. Again, playing for anybody who has good documentation and details on that uh group and stuff I, where is it bring it out um and then one of my all-time favorite fish songs in a hole it's a fun song Paige oh, sings it he does a great job he sounds amazing. the chorus is i'm an a-hole um it's it's just <laughs> great why can't we have that more of that I know his voice is like butter. I mean, it sounds so good. This is the debut, like you mentioned earlier, Jonathan. They're going to only play this song eight times. The last time in December of this year, 1989. So it's not going to last very long. But until Mexico. It's good while it was there. Until we bring comes back in Mexico. In the <laughs> Look, middle of Bowie. Two years ago or three years ago, they played Sea and Sand in Mexico. If that can come back, anything can come back. 
I'm going to cry just thinking about that again. Yeah, me too. Oh. Megan, you're on your own. Yeah. Take but it. I, I though, Love to it. your point about Paige sounding so good, <laughs> I would 100% take this over I've been around. If they could flip well, out. We don't have to forsake something else. In the, if you had to. This is not, we don't have to cut the baby in half. I have to think that. about that one before I before I decide on which one I want better. But I would love to hear this. It sounds so good. Paige's uh, voice in these in these late '80s shows is incredible. Yeah. Um, how good is this slave, you guys? Uh, Before slave, I just want to oh, jump in. Right. Did you notice after in a hall that there was a guy in the audience calling for Mike's song? So oh, people I didn't hear that. Are, they already have their favorites. That there's already people who are shouting at the band from like the front row to play the song they want to hear. Last week, we did an 88 show, which had the first full Mike's Groove. Oh, fun. Um, And here we are in 89, and it's regular in the rotation, just not on this night. Sorry, Mike. Sorry, guys. I just wanted to point that out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but so so, um, thank you, Brian. Uh, But how good is this slave? Oh my God. The peak is just, Paige and Trey just sound absolutely gorgeous. It's so beautiful. It's perfect. It ends with the same power that will become expected in the next couple of years. That makes Slave the set closer. It's there already. It's nascent, but it's there. Yeah. With or without the horns. Like the horns are really nice Mm -hmm. in this, but like it still carries the same weight and delicacy like it it walks that balance beautifully and uh yeah really yeah this is a song that they're like already nailing now just so amazing and then they close out the set with antelope super jazzy so groovy talk about having fun like when they're talking in the beginning and they're like marco escondolas and then they're like oh motherfucker i mean they just sound (laughs) super playful like they're like they're feeling it they're just having fun it rips it sounds so good super super good it kind of reminds me this and this this here this song and like the whole next set reminds me of that um 11 one vibe when they play 11 one you know where they're they're past the thing that they were working hard for they feel good about how it went and now just let's let's go i love that i also love uh incredible purpose calling for a modern horn sit-in on Slaverhood with James Casey, I fully support that. That would be fine. Yeah, you'd have to be yeah, a monster not to support that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, the, the run like, run like an yeah. The there's this at the end. I wrote it at about seven minutes as a timestamp where it's like when Stefan Curry, when you see him on like TikTok or on Instagram, and he does these crazy trick shots from like out in the middle of the seats in the chase center or from half court doing like a, an over the head loop. And they all, he makes all of them. That's what I feel like this run like an antelope sounds like it's insanity Mm -hmm. that you shouldn't be able to do this with your instruments, but they all are doing it at the most intense (laughs) speed, double time intensity and the horns on top of it all the way through the Rai Rai Rocco portion. And you think that someone's going to slip on a banana at some point, yeah. they're just going too fast. Like it can't hold. The center can't hold, but it does. And it, it just, it thrills me even listening to it. I can't do math. What is it? 26 years later? I'm bad. 
No, it would be if Mm-mm. there's a four in there, right? Oh, That's yeah, 89. shit. I'm it's really like a bad. 30, 36, may? I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm only 21 years old by that math. So <laughs> there we go. There you go. There you uh, go. That sounds great. But um, I just I couldn't believe what they were doing. And I, I could say the same thing about that part of Antelope 100 times from this point forward. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it just it just rips. And the fact that a bar band is doing this. Yeah. I mean, I say that with a kind of denigrating tone on purpose because a lot of people would, you know, they're just a bar band. But Jesus yeah. Christ, guys, look what the hell. It's so intense. So good. I would pay so much good money to be able to watch a proper video of this. Right. Oh, yeah. That would be amazing. I look for one. There are videos of not this show, but earlier in October at the front, there are videos up on YouTube. They're not very good quality, but they are there. But they're matched up with soundboard recording. So you could get the gist. I want this. Yeah, this one. (laughs) I want another archival release from this year. I mean, we only have one, and it's, I just, it's It's Townsend Park, right? Yeah. 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 That's the only one. Great show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Set three. All right. This is like, this is like the, I don't know. This is like after you've won something, what it's you like come on and play, right? Juicy encore, like more fun, than anything. Yeah. When the crowd like, chants one more song, one more song, and the sound guy doesn't have to go home yet. So he's like, yeah, all right, whatever. Play another kind. Last yeah. call. All right. No dogs allowed into Walk Away. Dinner and a movie into The Grange. <sighs> Let's get our covers in, shall we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So good. There's not that many covers in this show, but the ones that are here are really good. And yeah. this dinner and a movie stood out to me. It's so fun to hear them like yelling and making sounds and just having fun. This is one of the first songs that I heard when I was starting to learn fish. And I was like, oh, okay, this like defines fish to me. It's like no one would write a song like this except fish. Like it's silly lyrics dark dark undertones and these like ascending scales it just has this like kind of creepiness to it but then it's you know got these very like plain simple weird lyrics i think it's just it's so good and this is i like this version a lot do you think you were listening to the genta version which has like the table service sounds as well yeah probably (laughs) yeah so weird love that well that description could describe a lot of songs off junta yeah Yeah, we're talking about simple lyrics descending scales little creepy atmosphere that could just as well be contact. That could just as well yeah. be David Bowie. Uh, that that was their mo for yep. the time. But as they're foraying into different uh, methods now at this show, right? That was already because Hunta was released in 1988, wasn't it? At least on tape. 89, 89, 89? yeah, yeah. Okay. In April they started selling it, or in the spring they were selling it in shows right. on cassette. Yeah. It, well, very well could have been on the table in the back of the front on this very night. Yeah. Probably was. Back of the front. I see what you did there. Yeah. (laughs) The back of the front. I was just going to say real quick about that, about the album. It's very much like when a movie is released. By the time the movie gets to theaters, it's been, it's have been filmed for a year already. It's, It's over for the actors and the producers and the directors. Just like Fish, when they're releasing Junta to be for sale, they're already past that. They're working on this music for another album. I mean, that's that's the case with most folks. I mean, when the Beatles were putting out records, they were actually turning around singles really fast, like five times a year. And it would be, but you could they would record it and it would be out in weeks. And that's nobody moves that fast anymore, uh, unless it's all digital. And even that, they're not moving that fast nowadays. If you're making albums and making physical stuff, you are working a year ahead, Mm -hmm. and you don't think of it that way. I'm. Like I'm writing songs now 
that if they would end up on an album, that won't happen. That album has no shape and won't exist uh, until at least next year. Yeah. At the yeah. earliest. It just takes a long that's time. That's normal. Um, and even then, you know, as an independent group, they're having to earn the money to pay for their studio time. And uh, it takes time to make a record, takes time to get it put out. And um, yeah, they, they are. Wouldn't be signed by Electra. They wouldn't be signed by Electra until over a year from this show. Until well, they December. had a Go-Go Records put out uh, Long Boy To distribute Boy it, yes. Um, and then that fell apart. <laughs> but right, I but, yeah. so. right, but they didn't. But uh, Gogo didn't pay for their studio time. Like they right. weren't a national mm-hmm. distributor. Right. Anyway, um, so I just wanted to highlight one track from this third set. I just love the Lagrange. Yes, it me too. Rips. It's dirty, just mm-hmm. as this song ought to be. And um, it is kind of an area of the band that is not heard at all in this previous two sets yeah you're Uh, right nasty gritty rock oh it's so uh, good it really suits them yeah it's like rollicking it gets fast they have great little peaks and it just is such a tremendous way to end the set and they're just like see you tomorrow night you know just i think it really like is a good like exclamation point at the end of the set and i really want to hear fish play this song just trying to manifest that in mexico (laughs) anywhere msg mexico i want to hear it yeah so, yeah. takeaways. Brian, you're our guest. I'm going to start with you. Pick on you first. Um, what do you come away with after listening to this show as a whole, as a time capsule of 1989? Not necessarily indicative of all of the year, but a moment. I think an important moment of the from the year. I see it as not quite tying a ribbon on it, but... Kind of when I, what is it, a biblical verse, when I became a grown-up, I put away childish things. I think that's kind of where they're seeing themselves in terms of music production. You said that they're owning these new songs. They're honing them. They're making them a little tighter. And this early 90s, I know this is 89, but it's the third quarter of <laughs> of Oh, no, yet, you know, this thing that we have here is not dissimilar to what we have in three months, which is 1990, you know, it's right. So I see them not quite putting away, but saying, all right, we nailed the multi-part epics. Uh, There's still a few more to go, right? Like Reba, we still need to tie that up, but we're going to focus a little more on the songs now. And that's what I see moving forward. You know, I mean, uh, Megan listed a lot of the debuts from night from 1989, and there's going to be only more coming in 1990. So I think that they're going to say, we're going to be more of a, song focused band as opposed to a 30 minute whipping post that might've come out, you know, a year and a half ago or two years ago. Awesome though it may be, but now we're, now we're going to start looking to be a professional band. And to do that, we need to build up our audience to do that. We have to build up our live show. That's the big takeaway. They're turning the page, but the page is not quite turned. Well put, I think. Megan, how about you? Yeah. I mean, I would just second what Brian said. I think it's that growth. They're trying to grow their 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 fan base. And I think when I said marketable before, I meant become more, you know, grow <laughs> your base. I you. didn't mean like marketing. I meant like they need to get more fans. And they realize that sure. by doing that, they have to put on shows where they, you know, show their best foot and I think, or put their best foot forward. And I think 
the way that they do that is with their songwriting and their incredible musicianship. And I think that they're tightening up. So it's this kind of like growth outward and like a tightening up of, of their own, their songs and their music and their skills. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, this is, these guys have been pushing and growing and finding their footing for a long time as we've been moving through the years in this series. Now we are on the cusp of the nineties. Um, I know. I can't believe it. I don't know. Does the next decade start on the year zero or the year one? Who knows? It doesn't matter. It's 1989. The eighties were almost done. Good riddance to them. This is a band of the nineties that we are hearing take shape right here. And, um, yeah, it's a it's a fun show. If any of you listening have not listened to Ten Twenty Eighty Nine, you're missing out. This is this is the good stuff. So please uh, check it out. Yeah, I have to say I'm a little sad to leave the '80s because I've never listened to this much 1980s Fish, and it's just I've learned so much, and I've just loved this exercise. So I I am sadly saying goodbye to the '80s. Who would have ever thought I said that? But Next week, we're going to have, we're going to pause 40 for 40 because we're going to have our big Mexico recap on Monday. And we'll be back the week after that with the first show that we're going to talk about from 1990. Very exciting. Whatever that may be. Yeah, we'll keep you waiting. We'll let you know. Uh, Yeah, keep an eye on the Instagram and Megan will uh, announce it in advance after she's back from Mexico and, uh, you know whatever recovery is required there. Um, <laughs> we'll have a decision. Thanks for giving me some time, to. Jonathan. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I want that on my desk Monday morning. Okay. You, know. <laughs> you got it, sir. I am going to send you some uh, other eighties fish to listen to on your plane ride. Oh, I love that. Fun. Okay. Yeah. Yes. There's nothing and, more I like than getting uh, playlists from anyone in this group. <laughs> Brian, um, Thank you so much for uh, listening to the show and jumping on to join us and talk about it. It's been a lot of fun to have you here. It's good to see you again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Like I said earlier, it's a joy to talk about underheard shows and it shows that may deserve to be heard, but haven't been. So this is one of them. And uh, just real quick to anyone listening, my show is called Attendance Bias. It is a podcast very different from this one. So to vary your tastes up um, stylistically, <laughs> still about fish. Uh, but I have people, fans come on. They pick a show or even a jam that was just very special to them for any given reason. And I have them tell their story. So you could search for Attendance Bias. It's two words exactly as they're spelled on any podcast app. And you could also email, email me if you have a really good story or even if it's in your own head really good uh just uh email me attendancebias at gmail.com but megan jonathan and everyone involved at the hf pod thanks for having me on the pleasure thank you so much brian and thanks everybody for listening we'll see you next week have a great week and have fun everybody going to mexico say hi travel safe yeah thanks everybody Cyrus. 
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everyone. It's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy. Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast.